There are so many factors that impact our health. And today we're going to be talking to one that's very subtle, that many people don't think of it. Many people have no symptoms of this at all. And I want to begin our discussion about this topic by telling you a story. And it's the story or the case of the beautiful lady. This is probably about 15 years ago when it happened. I I was practicing in Guam with a lifestyle medicine center. And uh, I was was at my desk and I saw saw a lady with her five-year-old daughter get out of the car and walk into the wellness center, just looking through the large picture glass window at my office. I saw her come in, and as I was looking at her, I was wondering why she was coming to the wellness center. She was tall, she was lean, she was beautiful, and she had a beautiful little daughter with her. And, um, you know, just wasn't the typical picture of somebody that had something wrong with them. But isn't that often the way it is? And, um, and so she came and checked in, and she saw Dr. Horonuchu, one of my colleagues. About a week and a half later, since Dr. Horonuchu was um, actually on a, on a mission trip to the outer islands of the Marshall Islands, doing diabetes screening for an entire small island of 200 people. So she came to see me. And I was very intrigued, and I said, why don't you tell me the story from the beginning? What, what did you discuss with Dr. Horonuchi? Well, Dr. Horonuchi had this very interesting icebreaker where he actually would begin by asking the new patient what their favorite food was. A lot, a lot you can learn from somebody by asking them questions like that. And... And she kind of, you know, looked at him, kind of strange. She says, well, well, that's easy. My favorite food is deep dish, extra cheese, spinach, pizza. So he made a few notes. And then he said, now, uh, how can I help you? What is, what is the reason that you've come in today? What's going on with your health? What are your goals? She went on to explain to him, and now explain to me a week and a half later, that for the past 15 years, she's 30 years old now, but at roughly around the age of 14 or 15, she started having periodic, debilitating lower pelvic pain. It was so bad that her parents were alarmed by her pain and would take her to the family doctor. And the family doctor would do test upon test to figure out what was wrong with her, would refer her on to a specialist. The specialist would do thousands of dollars worth of tests, making sure that, that they didn't miss something that might be going on that was dreadfully wrong with this beautiful young lady. They didn't find anything. 
This intermittent pain would come and go every week or two, and this went on for years. Every year or two, this this pain, not just physical pain now, but the the psychological torture of, of this beautiful young lady thinking, what is wrong with me? What could possibly be wrong with me that is that is not even diagnosable by the best doctors in the area. It, someday am I going to see a doctor who finally discovers this rare disease, this cancer, whatever it might be, that's going to change my life forever. This goes on for 15 years. The physical pain but the emotional trauma of thinking that something horrible is wrong with her. So she explains this to Dr. Horonuchi, and he looks at her after five minutes of talking to her. He said, "Uh, I think I know what's wrong with you. And and she, looking back a week and a half later, she she says to me, you know, I, I almost got up and walked out of the office. Thinking that there's just no way. This can't, be, this can't be valid. He hasn't even done any tests on me yet. He hasn't even looked at my record. He just talked to me for five minutes. And all these other experts and specialists have been working with me on and off for 15 years and they don't have a clue. And she said that Dr. Hornucci asked me if I would be willing to change a couple things in my diet and come back in a week and a half or two weeks. But she, she went on with her story, and she says, see, um, because of this pain that I was experiencing, while in high school, junior high and high school, I started becoming especially interested in health, right? There, there was a reason to be. She, and so she, she said, I literally read every single book at our high school library that dealt with health. I read them all. And she says, because of that, I became very aware of health issues that other students and other youth my age had no knowledge of, and generally had no interest in. She said, I I chose at the age of 16 to become vegetarian, which alarmed my parents because, right, back then it was like, well, we're going to get your protein. (laughs) Right? You know, this is a horrible thing. You're going to get worse. You're going to be malnourished. But because of her awareness and her in-depth study, she felt very comfortable with making that move. And so, and so because she had chosen to completely move away from, from meats, her parents were at least encouraged by the fact that she was in part making up for that with her dairy and cheese and so forth. So she was getting protein. She was getting enough calories. But her pain 
persisted. Now, a week and a half later, after the challenge that Dr. Horanucci had given her, she had stayed away from all dairy and cheese for just 10 days. She said, I was shocked because, because after one day, after just one day of moving away from my favorite food, food class that I consumed regularly, thinking that it in fact was one of the best things that I could be doing or eating, after one day, she said, I actually slept that night without any pain. And then, of course, nagging doubt came in, and she thought to herself, well, this must be just a coincidence, something else, right? I mean, that actually would be a normal response for anybody. What, what else actually was different about this day that caused this? So she started doing the checklist, but maintaining her promise to Dr. Horonuchi to beyond that elimination diet to see what she was sensitive to. So this went on for a week, and she said, I, I knew that Dr. Honucci had asked me to do this for at least a you know, week and a half to two weeks. But she said, after a week of no pain whatsoever, I just had to challenge. See, if you do an elimination diet, the vat, which, is, which is oftentimes the gold standard in figuring out what we are individually sensitive towards. The way we go about learning from that is that you rechallenge a food that you think might be a problem in your diet. And so, so she said, um, last night, last night I decided that I was going to have my favorite food. And as she's telling me this, I'm smiling and she's smiling. I, I already know the answer. Because, you know, she's there. She's already committed. She knows. She says, I, I made my favorite deep dish, extra cheese, spinach pizza. She says, within an hour, I was doubled over in pain. And he says, I couldn't decide whether this was a good thing or it was a bad thing. <laughs> she was in so much pain, but in the back of her mind, she was thinking, wow, could this actually be true? Could, could Dr. Horinucci have actually figured out in just five minutes of assessing my situation and listening to my story what my problem is? It's interesting. Good clinicians will tell you, they'll say, if I just listen to you long enough, you'll tell me exactly what's wrong with you, even if you don't know. It's by looking at the patterns, by listening, putting all that information together with your background knowledge, all of a sudden you start seeing something that has been in front of that patient for many years, many, and sometimes many decades, but has been flying under the radar. So this beautiful lady was just beside herself. I couldn't take any credit for it because I hadn't done it. I, I was just 
witnessing the aftermath of this. And she, she went on to tell me how her, her gynecologist, her specialist, had finally said, you know, I have no idea. After just, just a, a month before, after, after literally five, $6,000 worth of tests, she said, you know, I have no idea. So why don't you go to the wellness center over there, maybe. She, she, this gynecologist in particular really had no interest in wellness. Uh, <laughs> it was just kind of a, a last option. And, and now, by following a comprehensive strategy to optimize digestion for her, Everybody's a little different. She no longer has that constant nagging worry that someday some smart doctor is going to figure out what's wrong with her. They're going to have some long, hard-to-remember term that refers to her serious disease that nobody could find for 15 years. She no longer has a hard time going to sleep in those, those uh, few minutes or hour as you're trying to get to sleep where you start thinking about all the things that you never take the time to think about because you don't want to think about it. So what are those issues in your life? What, what are those issues in my life? Are we, are we actually taking the time to figure this out or are we going... Year after year, decade after decade, making the same mistakes, not realizing it. Well, part of the reason for that is because well, we're, we're crazy busy. I, I, I love this, uh, this book that uh, Dr. Hollowell put out. Crazy busy, overstretched, overbooked, and about to snap. Any of you feel like I, I do sometimes, like a little bit? Yeah. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, you know, I, I, um, I got snowed in in Omaha, Nebraska last night. I was supposed to be seeing patients all day today. I just got in from San Diego Airport. Um, went from walking to the motel late at night in a sleet storm, blinding sleet storm, because Denver was, the weather in Denver was so bad, no planes could go that direction. And then flying into San Diego with the sun shining, 90 degree weather, just enough time to eat lunch sitting by the pool. Wow, what a contrast. But during this crazy, busy time that we all have, are we, are we taking the time to evaluate what we're going to limit and what we're going to add? Hopefully, all of you have had the opportunity to go through that worksheet that was sent out several weeks ago where we're looking at goals. And anybody 
who understands setting effective goals knows that they can't do everything, right? Some of us have that type of personality. We want to do it all, right? We want to do everything. But what that invariably means is that we will not be able to spend time with the most important of things. So we have to learn how to effectively set limits. It's not a dirty word. It's a necessity for us to be successful. So life is a balancing act. It's hard enough to walk on a tightrope, but sometimes doesn't it feel like we're walking on a tightrope with high heels? I know I couldn't do it. Maybe some of you ladies could. But if we are not paying attention to these wellness strategies that so easily, so easily get lost because they don't seem to be that important because we don't have the symptoms for it, so we're not going to address it. The the challenge in our lives is to make sure that we're taking the time to do the most important things. Now, if you really sit down and think about it, the most important things are to spend time in your spiritual development with God and with your family, those that you love the most. My, My oldest uncle... Dr. Stephen Youngberg, just about a week before he was struck by a pickup truck in Texas and killed, we were at the, the Loma Linda University Alumni Conference, and he had asked me to drop him off at his alumni gathering. Forget his class, class of 1940-something. And I had asked him, I said, Uncle Stephen, how, how many of your classmates are still left? He said, well, last year we had 30 of us. He was 80 years old at the time. Picked him up uh, about two and a half hours later, and so I half-jokingly said, um, Uncle Stephen, how many of your classmates are left now? And he said, we're, at, we're down to 27. And I said, Uncle Stephen, you, that's a 10% every year. That's, so you're in a high-risk group. And he turned to me and said, Wes, you never know. He says, you could be walking across the street and be hit by a car. I didn't think much of it that night. But less than 10 days later, that's exactly what happened to him. But on the way up to Cherry Valley, about a 20-minute drive from Loma Linda University, we had this wonderful talk. And I said, I said to him, I says, you're, you're 80 now and I'm 40. This was almost 15 years ago. And I said, what can you tell me? What advice can you give me? And he turned to me and he said, Wes, don't work so hard. And more time with your family. And, you know, doing this, doing this seminar series has forcing, forcing me to put out these handouts and 
talk about setting limits and talk about setting priorities has really caused me to rethink some of my priorities. And I hope it is helping you to rethink some of your priorities because we get so crazy busy that we forget what's most important. So make sure that whatever you do, whatever strategies you're emphasizing in your wellness program, that first and foremost that you're doing it with and for family. Because that's the most important thing we have in this world, doing things for the right reason. And those are the last words that my Uncle Stephen spoke to me. And I cherish them uh, in my life. So we want to we focus on priorities. We, we, we want to try to figure out how to balance all these things in a way that gives us the best. Remember that statement by Gordon McDonald where he said, Sometimes you have to say no to things you really want to do in order to say yes to the very best of things. It's a balancing act that necessitates setting limits and and moving away from things that are really good. We can come up with all kinds of rationale why they're so good, but they're taking away from the best of things. And so we need to learn how to say no. Well, The ongoing theme of this series is that chronic disease or any sense of dis-ease in our lives is any any form of health dysfunction is most often caused by a deficiency. It's a form of malnutrition, a missing wellness strategy. And today we're going to be looking at the, the, the important strategies that deal with how do we access nutrition? How do, we, how do we ensure that we're actually getting what we think we're getting? And, it's, and so this story begins with an understanding or becoming more aware. As, I, as you look at the slide here of, of the, the typical U.S. food consumption by calories, you begin to get an idea why there's so much dis-ease, why there's so much health dysfunction and chronic disease amongst us. It's because a full 51% of the calories consumed by Americans come from refined and processed foods. Foods that by their very nature are deficient, have had the majority of the good things taken away and essentially promoting this concept or this paradigm of hypercaloric malnutrition. We're getting plenty of calories. We're getting way too many calories, and those calories are not even satisfying the, the, the minimal necessity of nutrition in our lives. No wonder we keep eat, eating more and more and more on average. Why? Because the body's saying, we're missing something. Keep eating, maybe Maybe you'll eat the right thing and you'll get more nutrients. But see, if we keep eating the same foods that cause that hypercaloric malnutrition in the first place, we're never going to catch up. Another 42% of the American diet consists from dairy and animal foods. 
processed in their own way. Foods that by their very nature are not rich in nutrients. They're essentially nutrient poor. And only 7% of all the foods consumed by Americans are fruits, vegetables, legumes, whole plant-based foods. That's a tragedy. It's, it actually is surprising to me that we don't have more chronic disease and more health dysfunction than we do with, with information like this. So here's our goals. Here's what we want to be moving towards, and that is we want to be, made, uh, instead of getting 7% of our caloric intake from whole plant-based foods, we want to be shooting for 80%. This is what we call first-class foods. If you're following the seminar series with the workbook called Goodbye Diabetes, it's really goodbye disease, goodbye health problems. There's several chapters that really emphasize this concept, first-class food. And then, and then what are second-class foods, foods that are still healthy for you, but you know, you, you, we need to learn how to limit them. First-class foods, you don't have to limit because they're so loaded with nutrients that every time you consume some part of it, you are dramatically improving your potential. And then, and then uh, ultimately, we want to decrease our exposure to animal foods, much like when the China Health Study was conducted. They eat animal, some animal products, but they keep it generally under 8%. That's why at that time, they had such robust health. But that's changing because the Chinese now want to eat like we do. And it's, and it's destroying their health and has the potential to destroy their economy at the same time. And we want to, of course, decrease our refined starches okay, uh, uh, from the, the 51% down to roughly under 10%. So those are the goals that we're shooting for. And because as we look at the big picture, you know, the big killers are heart disease and cancer. So we know that research shows that high intake of both raw and cooked vegetables can reduce cancer risk by 50%. Now, see, that's assuming that we're actually breaking that down in our digestive tract and assimilating it. So that's why tonight's presentation is so important. Legumes and, and beans, peas, lentils provide three times more protein and three times more fiber than other starches do. That's why, in many respects, they are the king of all foods because they're not just loaded with healthy protein and healthy fiber, but they're loaded with many other of the vitamins and minerals which are critical to optimize. They're loaded with magnesium and potassium, and we'll be talking about that in a little bit. And so, but what if we're not digesting this very well? What if we're avoiding these foods because I just don't feel well when I consume them? I'm not suggesting everybody has to eat legumes. I'm suggesting, though, that we should do our best to fix the problem, which usually is poor digestion. 
Okay, so eating six or eight servings of the non-starchy vegetables, right? The colorful, lower-calorie type vegetables, including the raw salads, cruciferous vegetables, greens, and other colorful vegetables, that's the type of diet that dramatically increases your potential to reverse disease. And as we pointed out earlier, statistically, very, very few people come close to consuming this number of vegetables on a daily basis. So we have a, uh, we have a lot of growing to do and improving to do. So, so what is the purpose of eating? It's to supply the proper nutrients to every cell of the body so that our health may flourish. But that requires a healthy digestive system. See, the foods that we consume provide the building blocks for every aspect of our physiology and psychology. These are really, really important. In other words, our mood, our emotions are strongly influenced by your ability to extract and utilize, assimilate these building blocks that come from the foods that we eat. I'd like to suggest to you that there's a lot of us sitting here today, watching this on the internet, that are not assimilating these nutrients very well. And so that's why this is such a critical wellness strategy to pay attention to. One of uh, my medical heroes is Dr. Franz Engelfinger. He uh, was one of these tough-minded Germans, born in 1910, became a medical doctor, and, and very quickly rose in the ranks and became the president of the American Association of Gastroenterologists. And he, he was the one who essentially, in the 50s and 60s and 70s, took that whole field of medicine, of gastrointestinal medicine, uh, as some reported from kind of the voodoo medicine side into the most strictest scientific protocols available. He was such an academic that he became the chief editor of the New England Journal of Medicine from 1967 to 1977, which is, was and still is largely considered the number one medical journal in the world. And, and this is my favorite statement that I've read from him. He said, more than 80% of human illness is within the reach of the body's natural healing system. Do you believe that? That was a big statement for a medical academic to make back then. Bottom line is that if we are following the principles the wellness strategies that we've been outlining so far. That is, every principle we add to the, to the wellness approach that we have dramatically increases the chance of this being correct in your life. That you can now give your body an opportunity to heal itself. I don't heal people. Nobody heals people. It's the body was designed, was created with this intrinsic ability that if the laws of health, the laws of nature 
are, are not just followed, but are, are embraced. In other words, we are learning how this works and taking advantage of it. The body can heal itself, and that's great news. That's, that's awesome news. So, so that's why the, the presentation tonight is entitled Optimizing Digestion for Health and Healing, the First Priority in Wellness. I frequently will work with individuals, and they'll come in for whatever it might be. The first inkling that I have that there's potentially a digestive problem, I just stop and say, we need to, we need to get this taken care of first. Because unless we fix digestion, and oftentimes it's very subtle, there's no, there's no uh, awareness on the part of the patient that they have a digestive problem. I'll ask them, say, oh, no, my digestion's fine. But another 20 minutes into the initial visit, I'm pretty clear it's not fine. And unless we figure that out and fix that, everything else that we do is, is limited in its potential to bring healing. All right, so uh, another, another quick story, the case of the lady who stopped losing weight. I think of, of, um, of Lucy. She, she had come into um, our program. She was very overweight, diabetic, out of control, cholesterol high, blood pressure high. Uh, she was a metabolic mess, but she was committed. So she started the program, and she started losing weight. Her blood sugars came down. She was so excited. And then about six weeks into the program, about the third visit that I had with her, I could tell that her blood sugars were starting to come back up again. She hadn't lost any weight in, in the last two weeks. Um, and she was starting to have some pains. And so I said, well, wait a minute. Tell me about your pain. Where's this pain? She says, well, I don't know. I, I'm concerned that I might have kidney cancer. I said, um, okay, so, and she said, yeah, I've actually already gone to my family doctor. He's already done an ultrasound, and he's done a CT scan. He's very worried about my situation because of my out-of-control diabetes and other, other problems. And then she said, but he hasn't found any problems with me. In fact, he said, I'm actually doing a lot better than I was two months ago, which we already knew. But she's having these pains. So as I went down through the checklist, I asked her, I asked her how she was doing with her diet. She said, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not eating anything bad for me. I said, okay. But then I, I realized that there's this follow-up question for that, and that is, are you eating enough of the healthy foods? Because those are the building blocks for healing. It's not just a question of avoiding bad things. It's a question of getting that medicinal building block into your system so the body can heal. Use that to heal. And, and so as we talk, she realized, she says, you know what? I haven't been eating beans or non-starchy vegetables for about three weeks now. She hadn't even realized it because subconsciously, every time she ate those foods, she didn't feel well. And what we realized by the end of that visit is that we needed to concentrate 
on fixing digestion. So that's what we're going to be looking at. How do we do that? How do we, how do we make sense of this very intricate digestive process with, with food going down the esophagus and then into the stomach? You see, the stomach is designed by three layers of muscles that literally do this. They're, they're like an wa- old-fashioned washing machine that's just... just churning up that food, mixing up that food. And the, the mucosal layer, that, that thick layer of tissue in the stomach wall, it's designed to be an acid-producing factory and an enzyme-producing factory. And so the stomach is supposed to be acidic. It's supposed to be so acidic that the pH is supposed to be between 1 and 3, with 1 being the most acidic environment possible. And yet, we have a whole medical industry designed to take the acidity away from the stomach. And it seems to make common sense. Uh, I feel acidic. I'm in pain. I have an ulcer or gastritis. Therefore, I'm just going to take an antacid. Hey, I feel better when I take an antacid, when I take a proton pump inhibitor, an H2 blocker, prescription or over-the-counter medicines like that. But what is actually happening to my health when I do that? See, putting a Band-Aid on any medical problem places us at greater risk in the long run because we're not actually addressing the cause of the problem in the first place. Now, there are times we're taking an antacid or or a prescription medicine for an ulcer is a good thing. The problem is, though, is that once somebody begins these medicines, many of them have a hard time getting off of them. And the studies are very clear. The longer you're on those type of medications, the greater the risk of fracture... In fact, if you've, had, if you've been taking these prescription antacid medications during the previous year, you're at 40% greater risk of having a fracture this year. If you've been taking them for more than five or seven years, you're, you're over a 400% greater risk of having fractures. But a big problem with, with blocking the acid of the stomach what the, what the stomach was designed to do in the first place, is now you're not able to destroy the bacteria that comes in with the food. And bacteria can start taking over your system. Many individuals, especially the elderly, are coming down with C. difficile, Clostridia difficile, which is, which is uh, very serious. It causes chronic diarrhea. Why? Because it's a bacterial, chronic bacterial infection. Why? Because there's not enough acid in the stomach. So ironically, we want the stomach to be acidic. Many people are, uh, just because they're in the hospital, they're given an antacid medication just to prevent a stress-induced ulcer. Seems like a good idea but it's actually devastating the health of countless thousands of individuals because now they can't get off of it. Or they seem like they can't get off of it. 
Well, so this digestive system is very intricate. So let's, let's start looking at it. Let's, a quick story of the case of the busy executive. Many years ago, um, I, I was working with, um, with the wife of um, the chairman of the board of a large health insurance company. She was very interested in wellness, and, and we were uh, at the wellness center helping her with prediabetes and you know, preventing that from becoming diabetes, uh, improving her health in many ways, keeping her cholesterol in check. She was just very wellness-oriented. She had been encouraging her husband, this chairman of the board of this large health insurance company, to come in, but, you know, we don't have got time for that kind of stuff. You know, that, that's like getting massages and <laughs> stuff like that. Well, um, A couple of months before this, this uh, executive came to see me, he started noticing that he was having, at times, a debilitating pain in his midsection. He lived, he lived on the coast, beautiful ocean view. Not just view, he lived right on the ocean. And his, his dogs had plenty of room to, to run on this big estate. And he would, after work, he'd want to play with his dogs, and just bending over a little bit, he realized that it created excruciating pain to him. So he went to his family doctor, and his family doctor, you know, knew this guy's chairman of the board of a major health insurance company. So he, he wasted no time in ordering all the appropriate tests, and every test came back normal. He did more and more tests, and after about four or $5,000 worth of tests, he said, you know what, um, clearly you have pain in your digestive organs, but we can't find anything. There's no sign of a tumor. There's no other... So I'll, I'm just going to, just to be thorough, I'm going to refer you to a surgeon. And so he said, okay. So he went to see a surgeon who happened to be a friend of mine. And the surgeon looked at him and says, well, you know what we do, right? You know, we do surgery. See, I, I, can, I could cut your colon out, and you wouldn't have any more pain. You wouldn't have any more colon either. And so, so I tell you what, I'm going to refer you to an expert subspecialist at Loma Linda University. And so he did. He went to see him. And the, the subspecialist said, oh, that would have been criminal to have your colon removed. Tell you what, I got this. I got this medicine that you could take right now to take the pain right away. And he took one, and sure enough, he was able to roll and play with his dogs, and he was good. About two weeks later, he realized that, well, he needed about two of those pills to get the same effect. And you know the story. After six months, he was taking six of those special medications to prevent the pain in his bowels. But now his pain was worse than before, even with six pills. So finally his wife, well, well, I could tell that he was there because he was placating his wife. He was humoring her. And he walked into my office and he looked at me and said, Dr. Youngberg, don't talk to me about diet. My diet's good. 
So I said, okay, <laughs> all right. Of course, I was just going to be listening that, that day anyways. Um, and so I started just asking some simple questions, and he started telling me his story. Within a few minutes, I realized what was going on. He had a major digestive issue that could be fixed pretty simply if he made a few simple changes. But I bit my tongue. I let, let him tell his whole story. We got him on a few digestive enzymes, a little bit of, of uh, hydrochloric acid to acidify his stomach better because he essentially wasn't producing acid in his stomach properly. If you don't produce enough acid in your stomach for whatever reason, and there's lots of them, you're not going to digest your food very well. You're not going to absorb minerals and fat-soluble vitamins. You're not going to absorb vitamin B12 very well. You're not going to absorb magnesium very well. That's a huge problem. Well, he decided to humor me just for a few days so that his wife wouldn't, you know, get upset at him. And he discovered something within two days that his wife was right. Isn't that right, ladies? <laughs> and, uh, and so he was very grateful, but of course his wife was even more grateful because she had been very concerned for his health. So is there a connection between what we eat and our emotions? Is it possible that, that anxiety... Is it possible that even a panic attack could be related somehow to what we eat or how well we assimilate that diet? Had a, a, a wonderful lady came to see me who had been referred to me by her psychiatrist, of all things, because her triglyceride blood fats were over 700. So naturally, the psychiatrist said, hey, I can help you with your panic attacks, but I don't think I can help you with your, your triglycerides sky high. And so that would, be, that would be a good thing for you to discuss with uh, somebody at the Lifestyle Medicine Clinic. So she came in, and she was very gregarious, and she was telling me about all these things. And, and I, I looked at her and said, you know, she did not fit the profile of somebody that was overly anxious. And so I started asking a few questions. She says, when, does, when do these panic attacks occur? She says, oh, they can occur anytime. See, oftentimes we're not aware of what's happening in our own bodies. So I asked her the same question three or four different ways, and then she stopped. She says, you know what? Actually, it's more likely to occur about an hour after dinner. Huh. Big clue that there's some subtle digestive thing going on. You know what it ended up being? It ended up that... She was hypochlorhydric, meaning that her stomach lining was not producing hydrochloric acid the way it's supposed to. She wasn't breaking down protein. She wasn't initiating the, the breakdown of those foods into the building blocks. And so what happens, ironically, very quickly, is that the proteins begin to putrefy, the carbohydrates begin to ferment, and they actually produce lactic and pyruvic acids in a gas form that pr create pressure, sometimes felt, not always, as pressure right here underneath the rib cage. And just, just putting pressure here right now, I'm feeling a little anxious. All right? Okay? Not a little anxious. Okay? And 
So the pressure can do it. But another thing that happens in about 10% of individuals is that this lactic acid actually perfuses right into the bloodstream. And when that happens, it causes a chemically induced panic attack. Those are the same individuals that if we were to inject them with a little bit of lactic acid, it would put them right into an induced, a chemically induced panic attack. And I have, I'm not saying this is a major cause, uh, that, that this is, panic attacks are primarily caused by male digestion. But I think it's a subtle factor contributing to many, many cases. And I have over the years seen many people improve overnight by becoming aware of the relationship between food, how well it's being digested, and how that relates to mood, emotions, and the potential of panic attacks. So let's, let's look at some indications of poor digestion. Bloating, gas, belching, flatulence, constipation, diarrhea, low blood minerals. You see, if you're not producing enough acid, you can't, you can't, take, you can't take magnesium and chromium out of that food very well and other minerals, selenium. Your immune system depends on minerals to optimize its function. Your, your risk of having a heart attack dramatically increases if you're not absorbing magnesium well. And it's interesting to know that the vast majority of Americans are deficient in magnesium. It's not, a, it's not a theory. This has been proven over and over by these big government studies. The majority of Americans are low in magnesium, partly because we're not eating enough of the magnesium-rich foods, which are whole plant-based foods that haven't been refined because the refining process takes magnesium away, but also because we're not assimilating those nutrients. Many people who take a vitamin supplement that has minerals in it, and they go, oh, I don't feel good. So they think that vitamins aren't good for them because of that, actually are not feeling good because they don't have enough acid in their stomach to properly assimilate that. So that's actually a sign that you are in real need of those nutrients, but you just need to fix digestion at the same time. Headaches, anxiety, a, a, pr a primary Therapy for depression, anxiety, and headaches is actually taking magnesium citrate or Krebs magnesium multiple times throughout the day. Why? Because it's actually replacing into the body what is missing, what is deficient. So now everything starts working more closely to what it should be doing. Low magnesium levels are actually a primary cause of cholesterol becoming plaque. Harvard studies have shown that if you have high cholesterol but also a healthy level of magnesium, you don't get plaque development. But as soon as you take that magnesium away, now you get plaque formation and these fatty streaks forming these atheromas and arteries. So a critical step of preventing heart disease as well as all these emotional health conditions in neurologic conditions, optimized digestion, optimized mineral status. So uh, ulcers and liver problems are caused by poor digestion. Gastric reflux 
which ironically is primarily due to the lack of acid in the stomach leading to the fermentation gassy acidic byproducts. That's not commonly understood. Uh, bone spurs. Bone spurs? Digestion? Yeah, because if your magnesium is low, you're much more likely to develop bone spurs. Um, and, and taking magnesium and fixing digestion frequently resolves bone spurs or prevents them from getting worse. Uh, we talked about cardiovascular disease, B12. There's many medications on the market right now that impair the absorption of vitamin B12. One of those is the very best medicine for diabetes, which is metformin. In fact, that's, there's more than one study now implicating metformin and the potential to promote dementia or Alzheimer's. Why? It's because of the B12 issue, most likely. And so that's why when we're taking advantage of some of these potentially important medical therapies, we need to be thinking, how can we circumvent some of their side effects? One of them is fixed digestion and optimized B12 levels. The H. pylori bacteria, a very common infection, up to 50% of Americans have this infection and they're not treated. What does that do? It dramatically increases the risk of autoimmunity, cardiovascular disease, and diabetes. Uh, so um, uh, diabetes is definitely a factor related to poor digestion. Just improving digestion lowers blood sugars. No change in calories or exercise. Just improved digestion. It, it typically improves blood sugars. Why? Because the body's working the way it's supposed to do. Cancer, here's the working theory on this. If digestion is not optimal, whatever you're at genetic or environmental risk of is going to be enhanced, is going to be increased. So we need to we need to focus on those. Any kind of disease can be influenced. So here's an interesting study where um, researchers took a group of diabetics who had been shown to be low in magnesium on blood tests. That wasn't hard because almost all, all diabetics are going to be low in magnesium. Higher the blood sugars go, the more the kidneys flush out magnesium to try to get rid of that excess sugar. So a 12-week study with diabetics um, who had depression and also were known to be low in magnesium, they were given either randomized to either 450 milligrams of magnesium or are used imipramine, which is a tricyclic antidepressant, which ironically works because it improves or it enhances certain natural nutrients in the brain. Why don't we just naturally enhance normally occurring nutrients in the brain, in the bloodstream? Okay? And, and they found that the magnesium was just as effective at treating depression as the antidepressant was. Now, there's less focus on the cause instead of putting a big Band-Aid on this. And focusing on the cause in this way also lowered the risk of heart disease and many, many other conditions, not just the depression. So what are, what are the best times to eat? What, what are the, the optimal amount of meals to consume as it relates to health in a wellness program? This, this is a huge issue right now. And the reason I'm bringing it up in this session is because the number of meals you consume in a day have a powerful influence on your 
body's ability to digest that food. Naturally, if you consume six meals of really healthy first-class foods, you're going to be far better off doing that every day than eating two or three meals of more highly processed foods, even if it's vegan. Right? Okay? In other words, quality is critical. What you consume is really critical to the process. But all other things being equal, what's the optimal amount of meals for the average person to consume? Now, there's always an exception to the rule, right? Yeah, we, need to, we need to always strive to personalize any type of wellness program. In general, though, most people are better off, especially if they're trying to lose weight, lower their triglyceride blood fats, or lower their blood sugars, or lower blood pressure. If you're trying to do those things, generally speaking, you're better off with two to three meals a day with at least four to five hours in between meals. Now, that means you got to be careful with whatever you're doing medication-wise. If you're a diabetic and you're taking lots of insulin or other medications, you don't want to let your blood sugars get too low. That's far worse than letting it go high. Okay, so there's a lot of caveats to this. So we, got, we want to protect against low blood sugars. If you tend to be hypoglycemic, you don't want to eat two meals a day. Right? You just don't. Okay? If you're trying to rebuild your adrenals and support stabilization of blood sugars, you want to eat generally three meals a day, but make sure that those meals are well-balanced. The biggest challenge is that the meals aren't balanced well enough with healthy proteins, healthy fats, and healthy high-fiber carbohydrates. That's what leads to the hypoglycemic episode two to three hours later. So the, the most important time to eat is breakfast. If you don't feel like eating breakfast, that suggests that you have a digestive problem. That suggests that that food from the from the night before is still sitting there gnawing at you, just agitating you. So we need to fix that. That's critical that that is fixed right away. So make sure that you take advantage of breakfast. But some of us, the only way that's going to work is that if you actually stop eating dinner. Now, I eat dinner every night, so don't misunderstand me. Okay, the goal is to eat an earlier, lighter dinner, you know, preferably at least before seven. You want to have at least three, preferably four hours from dinner time until bedtime. In other words, you don't want to go to bed on a stomach that's still processing food. That means that you're not going to sleep well. You're not going to get that restorative sleep that's so critical to health and healing. So, so some of us actually need to go for a week or so where we just skip that evening meal. It's not easy. It's not like we're starving to death, right? It might feel like it, but the body's okay, so you just got to manage your medications properly and think through what you're doing. Um, and, and you'll feel a lot better if you start eating a regular breakfast and a good lunch and, if necessary, a lighter, earlier evening meal. Okay, so we already talked about the meal balancing, choosing a healthy protein. We're talking about whole plant-based foods here. So let's now talk about how, how to go about 
optimizing digestion. Let's go through some steps. Number one, we've got to prevent dehydration. It's so critical. And so take a look at the slides. I'm going to read through these quickly. Uh, early step in poor digestion it's, uh, that causes need to drink with meals, like cold, icy fluid, leads to toxic fermentation in the stomach. So drink your water at least a half an hour before the meal so that it's so now your stomach is prepared to digest and concentrate those enzymes into hydrochloric acid. So you actually break down and assimilate that food. Don't wash your meal down with water. Certainly don't do it with soda. It'd be better to do it with water <laughs> if you had to. Now, what about, let's say you're eating and you're just thirsty. What do you do? You drink. Too late. Too late to play that game. You got to drink. If you're thirsty, you got to drink. But that means that you should probably eat a little bit less, right? Because you don't want that to interfere with too much with digestion. So set it up so that you're drinking a tall glass of, of water first thing in the morning, and then about an hour and a half after breakfast, start drinking again, up to a half hour before the next meal, and so forth. That's how you optimize initially digestion and circulation. Because without enough water in your system, you're going to be dehydrated and your circulation will be impaired. Stroke and heart attack risk goes up 40% higher if you drink only a few glasses of water a day compared to drinking over six glasses of water a day. That's a major simple step to optimize your health. Okay, uh, also it's critical that we realize that digestion begins in the mouth. There's a great story that leads into the chapter on digestion in our workbook, Goodbye Diabetes, that, that uh, comes from the Glass Menagerie, a, a, a book uh, that many of us had to read in college. It's a great story emphasizing the, the power of initiating digestion appropriately. So um, then, then basically what many people can benefit if you're, especially if you have symptoms, by just getting off all dairy for three weeks and then rechallenge, see if that's what's going on and what's creating a problem for you. Um, another one is is uh, another trick is an Oriental medicine trick. Just take a little bit of warm liquid, like a little bit of warm soup or a little bit of warm herbal tea, right before the meal, and it'll prepare your digestive tract for better digestion. Okay, not cold, something warm, okay? Uh, and and may, may, some people need to limit the total number of foods that they're combining in that meal, even though that's less important than the others. Uh, other steps, uh, treat infections, like that H. pylori infection we talked about, any inf inflammations, any gastritis, treat it. And there's simple remedies available to do that. Um, avoid irritating foods, and we're all a little bit different. But pay attention to your body and avoid the foods that you know are irritating you. Okay, and using a comprehensive digestive enzyme after uh, most meals is very helpful to make up for what your body is not doing a good job of, producing that pancreatic enzyme, etc. So water is, is profoundly important for digestion. And, and we, we, uh, we've been talking about this already, but let me just say we talked about the heart attack risk being critical. Why? If you're dehydrated, the blood's going to be thicker. Cortisol's higher first thing in the morning. You're more likely to clot. One of the best things you can do is when you first wake up, rehydrate immediately 
And that, can lower, that could potentially save you from having a, a major event. Um, so drink plenty of water. Uh, and don't think that, well, I drank a whole bunch of liquid, so I don't need to drink water. I don't like water. If you don't like water, just learn to like it. Okay? There's really no substitute. There's no healthy substitute to water. Um, you can add little lemon, twist a lemon or lime to it. There's different things that you can do, but learn to enjoy water. Actually, coffee is a diuretic. It, it, it increases your risk for that morning heart attack, not decreasing your risk. So be aware of those things. Coffee also impairs absorption of B12 uh, and so forth. So, um, so and we, and we've already mentioned that exercise dramatically enhances absorption of minerals, especially if you're doing it immediately, lightly, right after most meals. So take advantage of that light activity soon after finishing the meal to enhance Enhance digestion, enhance absorption, and just help you feel a lot better as well. Okay, so other simple remedies are uh, many people really do need to be on a good probiotic. Okay, I, I like to use orthobiotic because it has nine strains uh, and, and a minimum of 20 billion units. Um, and you can use that before meals, sometimes only every other day. But many people need that, especially if you have a history of some kind of health problem. Some type of enzymes can be used after meals. These are enzymes to help break down carbohydrates and fats and proteins. Um, uh, there's a vegan formula called Digestizyme V that's especially good for helping break down plant foods, which many of us really struggle in breaking down. Whether we're vegetarian or not, we need to be consuming more plant-based foods or else we're just not going to be healthy. Just pure and simple. Uh, any healthy diet, whether it's paleo, Atkins, Ornish, any diet that has any potential to benefit you is going to be rich in vegetables. That's the one common denominator, oftentimes the only one, okay? But we want to enhance that, that program. So uh, we talked about the use of betaine HCL. This is actually the acid your stomach should be producing but may not be because of an allergy, because of an autoimmune issue, because of many, uh, many other issues. Uh, many times it's an allergy to dairy. It could, be, um, it could be an autoimmune situation because of a toxin or a bacterial infection. Bacteria that get in our colon, bad bacteria will actually produce toxins that block acid production, just like the medicines, exactly like the medicines that block acid production. So we need to eradicate those infections. Gentian is an herb that can be used with meals to enhance everything about digestion. Gallbladder, production of bile or release of bile, the, the, um, the production of hydrochloric acid in the stomach, and so forth. So gentian is oftentimes an herb that I use first for people to help stimulate overall improvements in, in uh, digestion. If somebody doesn't have a gallbladder, that's got to be fixed. We don't have time to talk about it, but not having a gallbladder is an issue. That's not an evolutionary remnant. It's there for a reason. And if you don't have it anymore, something needs to change to optimize your health. Okay. And then last of all, with regards to these simple remedies, many people do have a tendency to ulcers or gastritis or some type of health problem. And there are natural 
simple remedies available like aloe vera that can be taken that literally heals the gastric mucosa. It doesn't just make you feel better. It does that. But it literally heals that irritation that's causing the ulcer. It can, uh, gastrozyme is a chewable tablet that literally coats and heals the ulcer or the gastritis. And so many times I'll have people chew these 30 minutes before every meal and bedtime, and there's nothing better that I've seen than doing these simple strategies that works far better than any prescription medicine I've ever seen, okay? And, um, and so, and then uh, I, I couldn't finish a lecture on digestion without at least mentioning we could spend a whole two hours just on charcoal, but we don't have that time. But charcoal is, is, is very definitely a medical marvel if you use it right. It essentially is, uh, is a way that you can clean up toxins in your system. And you can take anywhere from a teaspoon of this activated powdered charcoal up to a tablespoon. Make sure that you do it at least three hours after any medications or at least two hours before your medications, because it will bind any medicine you take. Because charcoal's like a black hole, it'll just suck everything up that has any potential to be toxic to you. And so if you have any intestinal flu, I could tell you great stories about that. We don't have time. It'll, there's nothing better than charcoal to clear up an intestinal infection, a, a viral or bacterial flu, or a toxin that has got into your system. So take advantage of what I call charcoal, which is the backup plan. It'll mop up whatever, anything else you haven't been able to get to work. Charcoal is a a definite option available to you. Okay, if you could go to the next to the last slide, uh, the picture slide. And uh, basically, I want to challenge you tonight. Okay, we've kind of gone through all kinds of things. Many of you have have not, have not, not, really thought much about digestion because, you know, you don't, you don't have any symptoms. Yeah, there are a lot of symptoms we talked about, but every single case study that I presented were from people that were very well-educated that didn't believe that their symptoms had anything to do with digestion. Every single one. So don't, don't think that... Um, Don't think that you can't dramatically improve your health by paying attention to your digestion. So here's here's the challenge. Will I go on doing things as I've always done it? Or will I adapt my program based on what is best for me and my family? It's it's just a a general challenge for a call to action for you. What, What did you learn tonight? that can help you improve your overall wellness strategies? And then finally, what do I limit? What do I limit today? Anything? What do I add in order to optimize this for you, in order to personalize it for you? And finally, I just want to echo the, the, the promise, the challenge and promise of that renowned physician, Dr. Engelfinger, who said more than 80% of all human illness is within the reach of the body's natural healing system, which means that we now have an opportunity 
to give the body what it needs to heal itself. Thank you. Okay. Well, that was worth an extra 10 minutes, wasn't it? Yes. <laughs> All right. Do we have any questions? Yes, we do. We have one question coming online from Lanny from Thousand Oaks, California. I was listening to your presentation on digestion and stomach acid. I have been taking apple cider vinegar and honey cocktail to help with acid reflux. It seems to make me feel better. Is this helpful to do or more harmful? The proponents of this say that it has many other helpful benefits as well. What do you say? Thank okay, you. great question. Um, I agree that many of these um, natural folk remedies available have the potential to have many qualities that we may not fully appreciate or understand. Uh, I personally am not com completely comfortable with using most forms of vinegar. And the reason is, is that most forms, and apple cider vinegar may be an exception, I don't know, but most forms of vinegar actually promote fungal overgrowth. Not, not necessarily for everybody, but because uh, vinegar is effective at destroying bacteria, but it does not destroy fungi, and so the fungi tend to kind of take over. And so uh, there, there are many protocols that recognize this fact and therefore encourage people, especially if they tend to have toenail fungus or they tend to get athlete's feet or candida or other forms of fungal or yeast-like infections to minimize their exposure to anything that's fermented or anything that's vinegar-based. So um, having said that, I know of many people who report that they do feel better with apple cider vinegar. However, I would, I would suggest that a better option for most would be to actually add lemon juice. If, you're gonna, if you want to add something to your diet that has some nutritional value, add lemon juice. Add lemon juice to a salad really can dramatically increase the acidity of the stomach so that it can better uh, optimize the digestion of that entire meal. So uh, that's, that would be my approach. Thank you very much. Um, we want also questions from our audience, and we have Sally who's here, and she's going to be sharing with us at this moment. Um, I have a question, like we were talking about how everyone is so busy, and I was wondering if what your thoughts are on juicing vegetables and, and fruit to try and get in our six to eight quantities per day. Uh, pertaining to what? To, in order to get our six to eight servings per day. Oh, to get more, just to get just more to of get it. Just to get more. Sure. Okay, so what about, rather than raw. what about juicing fruits and vegetables as a way, as a strategy to get lots of servings of fruits and vegetables all at once? Well, I think that's definitely going the right direction, and especially if we're dealing with some serious chronic disease, it's a very powerful strategy because you are now taking in lots of nutrients. 
So there's, there's the options of blending, where you're actually getting the en- entire food. Uh, that means you're getting more fiber. But some people, when you're getting a lot of nutrients from juicing, you're not going to be able to get all the fiber from that food, generally speaking. That would potentially create some digestive problems for some. So, so I'm, I'm actually a supporter of, of juicing, depending on the situation, with an emphasis placed on the vegetables and a lesser emphasis on the fruits. And that's primarily so that you're not just taking in lots of fruit sugar. All, you want to be getting lots of broad-based nutrition from as many vegetables as possible, and then add enough fruit to make that taste good. But don't just emphasize the fruit. Obviously, one caveat would be somebody with diabetes or prediabetes. If they just did a lot of juicing of fruits, uh, their blood sugars would tend to go very high. Another caveat would be somebody who's trying to um, lower their triglyceride blood fats because fruit sugars will shoot that up. Somebody with gout, fruit sugars would shoot gout risk up very, very rapidly. And there's, there's ways to get around that, by the way, natural ways to get around that. But those would be some considerations. Thank yeah. you very much. Um, I have a question. Yeah. And the question is, what do you do for bloating? Okay. I, I think you mentioned a few okay. strategies so, there, but specifically um, after good. a meal. A practical question about bloating. The rule of thumb is, is that if you experience bloating within 45 minutes after eating, that chances are you are hypochlorhydric, meaning your stomach lining is not producing adequate hydrochloric acid. See, the lining in your stomach is, is this very rich factory of tissue and cells. In fact, they're little crypts. They're called the crypts of labor coon that have all kinds of cells lined in this well, this crypt, and it has parietal cells, which make hydrochloric acid, and it has chief cells that make pepsinogen, which is the enzyme that once activated by acid helps break down protein. So the person who's most likely to get bloated is, the pers- is somebody who eats and then, because there's not enough acid being released on top of that meal... That meal just sits there, and the protein in that meal starts to putrefy. The carbohydrates start to ferment, and now you have these acidic gases putting pressure on the stomach wall, putting pressure on that lower esophageal sphincter, uh, the bottom of the food pipe, and, uh, and so that's going to make you feel very uncomfortable. I've had patients who are just walking with a walking partner and their partner look at him and says, what's going on with your stomach? And their stomach's just, just visibly just expanding like a balloon. It, it can happen very rapidly, which kind of defies a reason a little bit, but it does. It, it happens. You wouldn't think that fermentation and putrefaction would happen that quickly, but it, it absolutely can. So that would mean the, the, the first step that I would suggest clinically is that is that they would want to evaluate their diet and say, what are the foods that I'm consuming that might be triggering this tendency? And we, we discuss certain foods. So for many people, it's dairy. Uh, in my experience, that's number one. For many people, it's wheat. 
It can be a food that's very healthy for most people, but if you even have a minor sensitivity to wheat or gluten, it can trigger that response. Um, or it could be other foods as well. So pay attention to what you're consuming. Keep a little working journal to see you know, what foods tend to trigger that. And, um, and then uh, if, if you need further support, uh, make sure that you're not drinking cold fluids with the meals. Follow the, the digestive guidelines that we've been discussing and outlining for you. And, uh, and then consider maybe taking a, a gentian herb, one or two with meals, and it, it works as a digestive tonic. Next step would be to consider hydrochloric acid at low doses. But anytime we add hydrochloric acid or even gentian herb, I always make sure that they're chewing this little gastrozyme uh, tablet, which helps heal and protect the esophagus and the stomach lining. Because you don't want to burn yourself. You don't want to be in more pain because you followed some of these little simple remedies. A question from our audience is, what can you tell us about alkaline water? Okay. truck's now promoting it. Okay, so what about alkaline water? Well, here's the bottom line. You want to have an alkaline system. So it's a little confusing because I just got done talking to you about how important it is to have an acidic environment in your stomach. And it seems to contradict this idea of having an alkaline body. Actually, it doesn't. You can't be alkaline in your blood unless you first produce enough hydrochloric acid in your stomach to extract the nutrients and the minerals from that food, absorb it into the bloodstream, which then turns the blood alkaline. You see how that works together? So you have to have an acidic environment in your stomach in order to initiate alkalinity. So what I would suggest is that the primary goal for alkalinization of your bloodstream is to focus on a diet that has not just adequate, but optimal sources of magnesium and chromium and selenium and zinc and all the minerals. And that's why many people actually will need to take some type of mineral supplement. Because plants can't just make minerals. They're either in the soil or they're not. They can make vitamins through photosynthesis. You can't make minerals. And so uh, that is one reason why we're so deficient in our mineral levels in the bloodstream, therefore leading to heart disease, cancer risk, and so many other free radical problems. Uh, So... Uh, and so, short answer to the question, I think alkaline water can be very useful. Uh, but I would not focus on that to the exclusion of the importance of an optimal diet and an optimal digestive uh, system. Okay. Thank you very much. If there's anybody in the audience who would like to come up and share their question, please do. There's a question from Rory from Murrieta. And his question is, how can you treat neuropathy? 
Can it be reversed? Do you have any recommendations for pain? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, neuropathy is basically damage that has occurred in the nerve. Frequently, in diabetics at least, uh, we, we call it diabetic or peripheral neuropathy where there's, there's damage to the nerves in the feet, sometimes the hands. And um, there are many prescription medications that seek to blunt the pain or deal with the pain. But uh, there's an interesting story. A, a colleague of mine, Dr. Eric Madrid, who's a family physician in the area, he was listening to a family practice audio disc. Every month they get a special presentation that all family physicians around the country get. And this professor was talking, his, his talk was on neuropathy and how to treat, how to provide pain management pharmaceutically. And at the beginning of his talk, he said, he says, by the way, you can take lipoic acid, which is a nutrient, and it can frequently, in certain patients, cure uh, neuropathy, nerve damage. He says, but... But the topic today is we're looking at what medicines are effective in, in dealing with the pain of neuropathy. We're going to focus on that. <laughs> and so Dr. Madrid was just kind of, you know, amazed as he was telling me this, is that, well, why don't we just all give alpha-lipoic acid to every patient who has neuropathy? I'm looking at people in this audience today who have been able to, to largely reverse neuropathy simply because they took advantage of that simple strategy of just including alpha-lipoic acid, a nutrient, a powerful antioxidant that is unique in the fact that it's both, both hydrophilic, water-soluble, and fat-soluble at the same time. So it gets into that nerve, and it protects the nerve against damage, and it helps it heal. It helps it heal. So the body, given half a chance, can heal itself if you give it the building blocks. And with nerves, two of the key building blocks are, number one, alpha-lipoic acid, which can be taken at 300 milligrams twice a day, uh, or, uh, and I should say, the essential omega-3 oils, the DHA and EPA, have been well-established to help heal nerves if you take a therapeutic level. And that's, of course, something that many people take as on a prescription basis because it lowers triglycerides and it also lowers cardiovascular mortality. So those would be two strategies. And of course, um, I would say optimize digestion. Why? Because you can't optimize B12 effectively unless you first optimize digestion. You can't optimize all those other nutrients that we don't really properly understand or appreciate yet unless you optimize digestion. So that's why this topic is so critical that we pay attention to it and emphasize it. In fact, it's been said by one of my mentors, Dr. Harry Eidinger, a brilliant, brilliant man, a professor of nutrition, a PhD in the area. He said the one supplement that is probably the, the um, needed the most and ignored the most is betaine hydrochloric acid, betaine HCL. Why? Because it, it optimizes the absorption and assimilation of all other nutrients. So first and foremost, 
Let's have a diet and a lifestyle that optimizes digestion. And that's where paying attention to all the wellness strategies are so critical. Paying attention to sunlight, just being in the sunlight is going to improve your digestion. Just going for a little walk after a meal dramatically improve your digestion. Uh, balancing your meals and eating lots of greens and colorful vegetables is going to improve your digestion. It will literally heal your stomach lining. Many people improve their digestion just by changing their diet towards a first-class, primarily whole plant-based diet. I think we're going to stop right here with the questions. I would like to thank our audience and those watching online for sharing your questions. And we all want to thank Dr. Wes Youngberg for you. the answers tonight. Thank you. God bless.